All right, I'm going to begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for the fellowship that we have with one another and with you. Thank you that we can gather, we can open the scriptures, we can learn, we can study, we can encourage in all the things that need to be done. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, we are entering one of the more amazing uh, things that happen in the Bible. I mean, it's all amazing, but here is converted Saul of Tarsus, uh, Jewish teacher, uh, all of the, as Jewish as you could be, serving Christ, and he goes into Athens, where the epicenter of Western civilization debated things, okay, and preaches Christ there. So that, if that doesn't interest us, I don't know what will. Okay, so let me set the stage again here in verse 21. Mentioned this last week. Is Luke's parenthetical comment about what's going on in Athens and on, I'm going to call it Mars Hill because I flubbed the pronunciation the other way of saying it. Hill, Hill of Aries, I think. It says here, now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So when Christ and the resurrection was preached by Paul, that fell into the category in their minds of something new. So uh, that gave him a chance to preach. And then, uh, so that was their request of this explanation. What's this new teaching? And there's irony here. Again, this is Luke's parenthetical comment. The irony is this. Paul was, in fact, preaching the oldest thing in human history or before human history, God creating the world out of nothing. All right? And so, amazing, amazing encounter here. And it also tells us that the gospel is going forward in the manner that Jesus commanded in Luke 24, in Acts 1, that it would go to certain Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And so by those gathering there and Paul ultimately going to Rome, this is going to touch the whole world. So that's important. But he's going to talk about the true God who created the world. I've already covered uh, a rebuttal. I've made a rebuttal to those who claim that Paul failed here because he did not fail. But there are groups, certain charismatic groups said Paul failed. He should have just gone and done signs and wonders rather than use um, logic and reason and scripture to refute bad arguments. I refuted that last time and the time before, so we'll go back over that. That's false. Um, as if signs and wonders are going to make people want to be Christian. might make them want to be religious. But it's the preaching of the gospel. Rather than hearing something new to pass time, 
they will be faced with the need to repent. Repenting and turning to God by faith through Christ is pretty new to philosophers. And I'll furthermore say this. Never should we allow success in terms of positive response, accolades of the world, numbers of people that like us. None of that gives us much of a clue whether we're doing what God called us to do. We need to know what the Bible said. We need to know the content of the gospel. We need to know the Great Commission. And we need to go and preach it. Uh, Brian, you were asking me about that. Uh, Isaiah 6. I will, he, he told me I'll bring it up. You may want to mention it, something too. But remember, um, Eric, the first time I ever met you, I went to meet him at the kind of the atrium area or the entrance of Bethel Seminary. And on the cornerstone, there was uh, a citation from I was, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 6 that said, here I am, who will go? Here I am, send me. And Brian this morning said, yeah, but they didn't want to hear, read the rest of it. They want to hear what he's preached. The judgment of hardening. And so as I'm coming into the seminary to meet Eric for the first time, to go talk to the provost, there says this cornerstone. And I think, didn't I say to you, we keep losing all the brick and mortar? Okay. So I think it's ironic that they had a theology teacher who's now an atheist, has renounced all forms of Christianity, that was teaching systematic theology, which caused Eric to become upset, which caused us to have the meeting to go to confront the guy. And here's the cornerstone. Here I am, send me, as if they actually want to hear it. But the irony is, uh, Yahweh says to... uh, Isaiah, yes, go and preach. Because they won't hear, they won't listen. Well, how long? Who wants to do that? I want to have followers. No, until the cities are destroyed and all this stuff happens. It was a sending to preach the truth, even though ultimately they're going to be hardened and judged. Go ahead now. Turn it on now. Well, I think the interesting thing about that Isaiah 6, is it on? Yeah. Oh, okay. Is that... Uh, he says, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Paul's going to say a little preview, as you would say. Paul's going to say the same thing later on in Acts. Okay, he's going to be quoting uh, this Isaiah 6. And my thought was that in our everyday life, if we're out speaking to people, witnessing or or talking about uh, God's word, they kind of look at you like you're like you're babbling, and because they don't have ears to yeah, hear. What's babbling and, and it and it all goes back to when Jesus uh, gave the reason why he spoke in parables because they don't understand. Good reading. Let me let me comment on that. That's one of the biggest misunderstandings, is that Jesus used parables because stories make things easier to understand. But that's not what he said. Remember when the disciples asked him, why are you using parables? And then he cited that passage and he said, no, this is hardening. I'll just tell you, this is 
because they have hard hearts. They don't love the truth. And so what does it mean? And he would tell them. So parables. See, remember Rick Warren said, you got to tell stories and make it fun and interesting. Otherwise, they can't learn. He totally misunderstood the point of parables. All right. And so I, we got a lot to, to learn, a lot to understand. And so I would say, let's start with this. One of the things that God gives us through conversion is a love for the truth. Notice, remember, it says in Thessalonians, they did not receive, decomai, welcome, the love of the truth so as to be saved. If you do love the truth, because God gave us a heart that loves the truth, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't love the truth, you're going to have a problem with Jesus. Does that make sense? All right, so here we go. Mars Hill. Quick, I won't spend a lot of time, but there's my show and tell again. I do it the old-fashioned way. I can't, there's Mars Hill, this complex, the Agora, uh, Parthenon. Here's where all this happens. Still there. Real history, real place, time and space, real people. This isn't myth. Does that make sense? It's not myth. It's real. How about the unknown God? There's where there's an interesting and amazing takeoff. So verse 22 and 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now there's irony there. Okay, so for one thing, remember we looked at the Epicureans and the Stoics. I read material about that. They weren't exactly polytheists. They're more philosophers. They sat back and said, Live for pleasure, live for, you know, just the contemplative life or whatever. But there's all these gods out there, and the culture was polytheistic. But what Paul is saying, the true God, you really don't know. Does that make sense? Anybody want to discuss that? Is there some irony that the one God they needed to know they didn't know? Okay. Um, let's have a little, I, want, I have something for my, yes, go ahead. It, it's, it's the same thing as the thing you just went over, something new. It, it's the same irony almost. <laughs> yeah. it, it's not it something new. new, it's something old. And your unknown God can actually be known and have a relationship yeah. personally with through you. Through Christ, right, through Christ. Turn to Isaiah 45, starting verse 18. And I want to show that there is a background to all of this. And this will, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Get your Bibles open there, keep them there, and that's a little preview for the next slide, because I see I have that reference on the next slide. 
So let's look at this one first. There are three major speeches in Acts. I got this from Tannehill. And this was intriguing to me. The major speech is where Luke tells us a whole lot of details about what Paul said in a certain situation, or Peter earlier. But in the case of Paul, there's a major speech in Acts 13, 16 to 41, and that was in Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue. And I have that. Uh, that would be too long of a review, but I, I printed that all out. The printer ran out of toner, but I fixed that. And you can look that up yourself. It's Acts, Acts 13, 16 to 41. And what did he preach? Well, what Paul did there was he went back to what he, what he shared as a Jewish teacher, which is the Old Testament scriptures. And he recounted the wilderness wanderings, the promises of God, Samuel, Saul, David, excuse me, repentance, and then the resurrection of Christ, and so on. And you can look at that. Uh, it would take too long to go back over that. But there's the speech to the Jews. Now, in a lot of the modern analysis of this, they ignore the real central key points and make everything about sociological analysis. That's what was going on at seminary. That's okay if it's objective, but in the end, you're going to have to preach Christ in the resurrection. So you can analyze the sociology of the synagogue. You can analyze the sociology of Mars Hill. And you can analyze the sociology of Christendom, which I don't know exactly what that is, but that's what we've got to try to figure out. But in the end, let's look at what's similar. The Jews in the synagogue already believed Genesis. And they had a common history, but he preached Christ in the resurrection. What did he preach at Mars Hill? Christ in the resurrection. But he filled in some other details. And then, what did he say to the church of God? I did not fail to declare any, I, I gave you the whole counsel of God. I did not withhold from you anything that was profitable. And he confirmed that this is what we need to know. We need to be in the scriptures, Christ, the gospel, the whole counsel of God. All right? So that's what the church is. So that's the background to all of this. So there's three major speeches. The one right here at Athens, the previous one at Pisidian Antioch, and the future one in Ephesus to the elders. So you can look that up if you want to. Uh, I think you probably have a printout. But you can see the content there is very interesting. In Luke X, let me help you and help all of us as we learn this. Tannehill helped me. When there's a major speech in Luke X, or even if it's a shorter one, that's Luke's way 
of telling us what's important. And I've been showing you that. Simeon, Zacharias, Mary, they gave speeches. And if Luke says the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, and this is what they said, then Luke is saying, this is from God, it's important, and it's telling us what God's doing. Does that make sense? In Acts 2, Holy Spirit fell, Peter stood up, big major speech, sets the stage. Amazing. Peter gives another speech. Now we got three major speeches of Paul. So if you want to understand Luke Acts, pay attention to speeches of people that Luke is telling us are speaking for God. Now, as to the John Wimbers of the world that say Paul failed in Athens, he didn't do it right, he should have done signs and wonders. What that kind of thing does is totally ignores authorial intent. Who determines the meaning of the scripture? The reader or the Holy Spirit-inspired author? I would say the Holy Spirit-inspired author. Bethel Seminary wasn't all bad. My first class there was from Robert Stein on hermeneutics, who, it was just revolutionary. It wasn't new. I'd heard that, but having it from one of the best teachers was great. And what he taught was the author determines the meaning. And in order to illustrate that to us, and he, and this was just upsetting to these people from all the different churches that were going to seminary. He says, suppose there's a passage and you're not sure what it means. And you can get linguists, language experts, understand language, context, and everything else who may not even be Christians, but they can tell you what the author is saying. And then you can get some very spiritual Baptists to go on a hill and pray about it. Who do you think is going to have the right answer? Well, I kind of ruined the class because I was sitting here. And I said, I'll go with the linguist every time. Because uh, the meaning isn't determined by the reader being pious. It's determined by the author who wrote. Now, in the case of Scripture, yes, Holy Spirit-inspired people wrote. The text doesn't have a life of its own. The text is what the author used to convey the meaning to the reader. The meaning doesn't have as many meanings as there are readers. One. And, and, and I think when I wrote my book about emergent, I pointed out the absurdity of anything else. It would never hold up in a court of law. If somebody broke into a house, beat everybody up, stole everything, got caught, red-handed, it's on security camera, it's taken in, now, uh, this was old when I wrote the book, nowadays, I don't know if anything holds up. But anyhow, goes into a court of law, and they said, everything, this, you did it, it's obvious. And they, and the, the criminal says, well, that's your truth. But I got my truth. And in my mind, I was redistributing the wealth. I don't know what I mean, whatever. Well, that would be absurd. Now, I wrote that book, 2008. And I think most people have to agree that was good. But isn't it weird now that not everybody would even agree? Maybe the crook's right. 
So uh, that's really bad, but now we're going back to Tower of Babel. But here's the point. The author determines the meaning. The text is the tool used to convey the meaning from the author to the reader, and it means what the author intended. The text is not malleable. It's not something that's going to, like putty that you can make into a, a little doggy, or then you make it into a kitty, and then you make it into a brick. It means what it means. Go ahead. You know, Bob, that's a good way of describing the difference in Bethel Seminary from when Bob was there. You had professors like Bob Stein who said the author determines the meaning. By the time I get there, it's the reader defines the meaning. And that's the shift that we've seen in evangelicalism. To really boil it down, it can all be boiled down to that. We went from the author determining the meaning, the modern understanding of knowledge, to the postmodern understanding of knowledge where the reader defines the meaning. The same thing has occurred with the Constitution. The Constitution no longer means what the authors wrote, but rather what some Supreme Court justice wants it to say. And so that's the big divide, and that's a great way of summarizing it, Bob, the difference that you and I had at uh, Bethel and why you had to come there with the showdown with the provost. Right. Yeah. And as soon as I brought objective facts, he backed down, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Meeting was over. He didn't even try to refute what I was saying. I brought my notes from when I was there. Dr. Rakestraw, who was a godly man, I didn't agree with his theology, but he did believe the Bible. And we had to learn what the Bible said about things that all people who are going to be in the ministry needed to know. And so I asked him, when are we going to learn these things? Do you don't think the students today need to learn about this? And then he looks at Eric, how much of your money you want back? Then he gave him none. Okay, go ahead. At the same time that he was in seminary, I was in high school. And I remember I had this English teacher who was a fresh graduate, brand new teacher. And he came in one day and he was telling us the truth is whatever you believe to be true, which was exactly the shift that was starting to happen at Bethel was now coming in. And it was St. Louis Park High School right up here, right up the road. And so finally one day I said, well, okay, if the truth is whatever I believe to be true, how can you mark something wrong on my test? (laughs) And he looks at me and he says, Miss DeWay, in this class you will be required to learn my truth. (laughs) But thinking back on that now, that's an admission that something is right and something is wrong. He didn't really believe that the truth was whatever we believe to be true. So how sad is it then that this is what the church is embracing? Right. Yeah, see, I'm not shocked that the world thinks that way, but the church seems what's called church does. So now I'm rethinking. I think the definition of the church has to go back to scripture alone. And that the institutional church, every institutional church, they may have some of the elect in there, but that's not the biblical definition of church. I'm not claiming I know how to fix it, but I think at least in our minds we can know how the Bible defines the church. We ran into that up in Canada, the great brothers, but they all believed in the institutional church. And so when we were teaching the authority of Scripture, and then I included a priest of every believer. They didn't say, no, we reject that, because it would be embarrassing, because that's what Luther used as the foundation of the Reformation. But we got our creeds and our council. We want to go by that. And so 
uh, here's what, we're, what, what we need to do. Let's just go back to the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, and that anyone can search the Scripture. And that's why all these years we reward astute readings. Because I learned that from one of my professors. Oh, it was great, my favorite professor. And uh, he, the biggest compliment I ever got was I, he told me I had an astute reading. I said, wow, that's better than A. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't have any coffee. But, but that, why is that important? Because it's pointing out that the author of the scripture determines the meaning. And anybody who loves the truth, who knows Christ, may read and see something that's clear and it's right. The text doesn't determine the meaning. The author does. The text helps us understand the meaning. Now, Jessica's illustration, Eric's, think about this. Attacking the ability of human language to convey meaning is an attempt to go back to what happened at the Tower of Babel. And as soon as the ability to convey meaning was sorted, the tower stopped. So frankly, we have an attack against human beings creating the image of God doing anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's hard to understand. Over here, Bob. Way, no, way back there. It, this is not a I voice. I see that hand. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. This is not a, this is not a disembodied voice that's I'm, coming I'm from. I'm glad you're really here, Rich. <laughs> it's just me, a bald guy in the back. Um, it's hard to understand how far we've fallen. I mean, it, to go from total illogic uh, postmodern thought, the truth is whatever you want it to be. You know, in the school system, in the seminary, I mean, where does it end? And the, and the truth is, it, it doesn't end. It just keeps on spiraling right. downward. And how did we get here? I mean, how did we get here? When I was a kid, you, we didn't think like this. Nobody thought like this. If you did think like this, you're a school teacher, you'd be fired. You'd be given your papers. You'd be walking out the door. I think it all comes down to Romans chapter 1. Yeah. When, when the Lord gives you over to lust, and we take more lust, and we see that lust is good and sin is good, it just goes down the, the, the toilet into a debased mind, a mind that just doesn't work. Uh, it's insanity. Well, you, can't, you can't learn anything. Here, I still go back to Norman Geisler's gun, my favorite. In the late 80s, I joined an apologetics group, and we brought Norm Geisler in to speak on apologetics, and that was really fun. And it was, I, actually, I ended up in seminary not long after that. It was like late 80s. When would that happen in your school? About then? In 89, Yeah, about that time. We started thinking about these things. And somebody said, well, why use apologetics? This is what they asked Norman Geisler. Why use apologetics and give reasons? Because people don't believe in rationality or reason anyhow. So what good is it? And here's his answer. Give an illustration. Suppose you have a gun hid in your bedroom under the pillow, and a robber breaks through the window, comes after you and to rob you and beat you up or whatever, and you point the gun at him, and the robber says, I don't care, I don't believe in guns. <laughs> and so Geisler says, 
Well, pull the trigger, it'll still work. Okay, it'll still stop the robber. Now, that may seem a little crass nowadays, but his point was this, not to shoot, necessarily shoot everybody who comes through your window, but his point was this. God made human beings rational because that's how we survive on the earth. Okay? And don't back down from using evidence and reason based on scripture because the culture doesn't believe in it. Okay? So I remember back further in the early 70s in, in Bible college, uh, my teacher, Reverend Phillips, who was my Greek teacher and, and, and taught other things, said this, analyze the book of Acts. Every single message in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, Paul, in synagogues, on Mars Hill, Rome, everywhere we find somebody give a speech mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why? Why? Because that is the proof, and we're going to see that. That, Paul said, it furnished proof to all men, meaning all human beings. Because there was evidence. It was really and truly the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Promised One, the Christ, the one who the Old Testament says ultimately will bring in people from all the nations. And what proved it was the resurrection. The tomb is empty. Peter preached that. Nobody ever came and said, oh, no, you're wrong. We actually found the dead body. Nobody said, they all agreed the tomb was empty. They had no body. Question is, do you love the truth or not? The Roman guards, they didn't love the truth. They knew the tomb was empty. They were the first ones to know for sure the tomb was empty. And what did they do? They took money to lie about it. They knew it was empty, but we'd rather have money. How, how, how is that money going to help them on a day of judgment? It won't. Okay, so now we go to Isaiah 45. And I, the reason I want to do that is to point out there's a unity to the message, though there's different content in a sense of what's common ground. So when Paul goes into a synagogue, they're going to already agree with him about a lot of the Old Testament facts, that there was a wilderness wandering, there was a Dave, King David, that there was a Saul, there was things he preached in the city in Antioch. Now he goes to Mars Hill, they don't know those details, but it doesn't mean he didn't preach Christ in the resurrection. And the Old Testament actually tells us that God does, uh, is the creator, and there's similar ideas in Isaiah 45 to what Paul preached here. So I'll just read it to you. Now I'm reading uh, from the Lexham Bible. Uh, no, here's what I'm reading from. Because the, the Old Testament um, citations in the New are almost always from the Septuagint. And so Logo Software provides with two different English translations of the Septuagint. 
which is very handy. So this is the Lexem English translation of the Septuagint. So I'll read from that. You can follow in your whatever version you have. Isaiah 45, 18 through 21. This is what the Lord who made the sky, this one is God who brought the earth to light and made it. He himself marked its boundary. He did not make it for nothing, but formed it to be inhabited, says, I am, and there is no other. This is just a translation directly out of the Greek Old Testament. I think it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, says, I am. Now, what did Jesus say? Before Abraham existed, I am. So the Jehovah Witnesses are heretics and damnable because they say Jesus is not the great I am, he's created being, right? Okay. Now, Isaiah 45, 19 from this translation, following yours, uh, which is from the Hebrew Old Testament, and it was translated, I have not spoken in secret or in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek vanity. I am, I am the Lord who speaks righteousness and announces truth. Isaiah 45, 19 from a translation from, directly from the Septuagint. Isaiah 45, 20. Gather together and come here. Take counsel together, you who have been delivered from among the nations. Those who lift up wood, they're in great figure and pray to gods that do not save do not know. So here in Isaiah 45, 20, Isaiah is rebuking, God is through Isaiah, polytheism and paganism and gods that don't know anything. In fact, gods made with hands are really not good. Now, even Israel tried that with the golden calf. It doesn't work out so good. Verse 21. If they announce, let them approach that they may know at once who made these things. Audible from the beginning. Then it will be announced to you, quote, I am God. There is no other besides me. There is no righteous or savior besides me. Isaiah uh, 45, 18 through 21, using the Logos Bible software's Lexum. English Septuagint. Now, it's a little different from the English Bible, but do you see any conceptual differences? Did you? It's pretty right on. Okay. So why, why cite that? Because this is not a case of Paul having a different message for the Jews and a different one for the Gentiles. The message is the same. He's dealing with a different audience and gets the same point home. So he announced the God who has revealed himself, who has spoken, and who has renounced polytheism, and that this eternal, non-contingent creator doesn't need anybody to take care of him. Here's a little... Think about this one. If you have a God... 
that's in trouble if you don't take care of that God? You got the wrong God. I'll just let that sink in. There's an awful lot of people with their little all over the world. Oh, I gotta I gotta light the fire. I gotta put out the I gotta put the incense. Oh, oh my God fell over. Put it back up again. <laughs> Didn't that happen in the old testament where that day God was that kept falling over? Okay. The, the real God doesn't have to have anybody take care of him. Okay, so Acts 17, 24, 25. Since God made the world, that was in Isaiah 45, and all things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, God is not uh, limited spatially or geographically. He's the Lord of the whole universe. Nor is he served by human hands. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't serve God, but he's not like these idols. And if he is sick of them, he can sell them to the idol maker or melt them down. He's going to exist whether anybody serves him or not. Okay? As though he needed anything, Paul said, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. If you're breathing, if you're living, if you're functioning, it's because of God. Or there'd be nothing. Either something eternal exists or something not eternal came forth out of nothing. That's the ultimate reality. Now, there are people who don't know God and say, I know that. Talk to them. I know the universe is going to die of heat death. I know the universe is not eternally old. But they're willing to live with that absurdity. Or they go to Eastern religion and everything is evolving into something. So Paul preached about the creator, Acts 14, 15. And then let me just cite these Hebrews uh, references, Hebrews 9, 11 and 9, 24. Talking about this thing not made with hands. Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Jesus ascended to heaven. And Psalm 110 is cited more than any other thing in the Old Testament. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's dwelling place in heaven was it made by human hands? That's the point. Now, in Hebrews, the author is rebuking Jewish people who had come to Christ but wanted to go back to temple Judaism. The reason, one of the reasons stated right in Hebrews was that they had a day of atonement every year and the blood was shed every year. And you, had, you hear the bells on the, and the tassels and the garment and all the pageantry going on. People love pageantry, and they had it. Church is meeting in some little room, just reading and talking about Christ and the gospel. Look at the temple. Look at all this stuff. That must be right. I can't see Christ. Remember Sinai? We can't see Moses. Where is he? I think he's gone. Golden calf. Now we have, well, let's go back to the temple Judaism. They have something you can see. 
made with hands. The author of Hebrews says, not made with hands. That is saying, not of this creation. Verse 924, here's what it says. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, same words in the Greek, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's the high priest. That's the one who died once for all. That's the one whose blood was shed once for all that truly takes away sins. He entered into a, a tabernacle not made with hands. We can make anything we want. You can make Crystal Cathedral, right? St. Peter's Cathedral, or what do they call that? Cathedral. You can make edifice. You can do all this stuff. And I'm not saying you can't have a building and preach the gospel in the building, but the dwelling place of God is in heaven. Our intercessor is in heaven. And he hears us, and he doesn't need an intermediary, intermediator between us and the Father other than Jesus Christ, who makes intercession for us, yes. You know, Bob, you've pointed this out earlier in Acts as well. Anytime you see that phrase, made with human hands, it's always something that's deficient or sinful, right. and, and really both. What's interesting is when you taught through Colossians 2, it really struck me that the circumcision that we need is the circumcision without hands. Amen. That's the point that Paul makes. So if something that you have a circumcision with hands, it's deficient, it's from man, it's the law of Moses, it's, it's less than what God does. The circumcision made without hands is the regeneration of the heart, and it's from God. And so you see this theme all the way through the New Testament. If it's done by human hands, it's deficient, and it needs God to remedy it. Right. And so that's interestingly what Paul said to these philosophers. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. They had lots of temples in Athens, too. Little houses for the gods. Um, the first house we bought in Salem's Park, I think it was in the fall of 1980, had been owned by Catholics. They had these little places built in. Remember that, Jessica? And they, that's where they'd put their idols. Well, they wouldn't call them that. But they had them sitting there. Now, the question is, why can't you believe the promises of God? Why can't you believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be? Why can't you believe that he hears you because he's a loving, compassionate Savior, the omnipotent creator who has all power to answer prayer, the omniscient, omniscient God who can hear a billion people at once if necessary, I don't think Mary can do that, can she? No. Not, not the real Mary. But they prefer to build a little place for their God. And I've been told that it's offensive for me to say this. Well, it's probably offensive for Paul to tell the Athenian philosophers. We need to go by the scripture. If you look at just, how would you say it? social realities people can make all the gods they want nobody's stopping them at least here in this country you can have this god that god the other god any god fine they had that there but did it get them to heaven no did any of these little gods served by hands have the power to answer prayer 
have promises that he's kept in history, sent the eternal son, whatever the debate is about the reality of the Trinity before the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity is born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Do they have that? No, they just have myth. So the choice is do we go to the true God who proved who he is through Christ, who was raised and ascended to heaven, or do we make a little God and put it in our little spot here? That makes me feel good. When we had the when I was a assistant pastor of a building church that had a building on twenty fourth and Nicollet, people would come and grab cardboard from Harks and set up their little shanties and then I'd have to go tear it all down so we could have church and they left behind disgusting things awful just this is awful wicked and finally one of them was out there and I said why do you do this here it makes me feel close to God no no building is going to make you feel close to God you need Christ well they don't away they go and I don't know. How do you get this through to people? No building makes you close to God. Yes. Well, it's just amazing to consider the natural man, the phenomena of the natural man, the person born into this world without knowledge of God, to see what they want. I mean, so Moses went up on the mountain. They couldn't see him, so they built themselves a little figure. You know, anything they can see, feel, and touch at a conversation with a neighbor. She goes, you got nothing. I got the Pope. We can see the Pope. We can listen to the Pope. We can see him on TV. You got nothing. You got nothing. We can't see our God. Our God is taken by faith, faith that is given to us from on high. That's the only thing. That only takes me out of the realm of being a natural man is the faith that God gives me. Otherwise, I'm like that woman across the street. I got nothing except for the Pope. Well, um, here's the question. The truth of Paul's claim, as we'll see, rests on whether Christ was really raised from the dead. Did he die? Did he on the cross? Catholics say they believe this, but then they add so much to it, you can't find it. Did he shed his blood once for all, substitutionary sacrifice? Once for all is where they get off the train. No, we got to have the sacrifice over and over again and add the works of the saints and merit. Then, was he raised from the dead? before witnesses. That claim is made throughout Acts. And is it true? If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him alone and believe the promises of God, are your sins forgiven? Yes. And then how do you live? By faith in Christ and trusting in him. Now, I think that separates believers from unbelievers. Let's talk about something here that's on my heart. And uh, I'll go to the next slide next time I'm here. But I've been thinking about this. I can't get it out of my mind. I want to present it 
to the church and we, we have time, we have mice, you can discuss this. For the last several years, it's been on my heart and mind that if indeed the fruit of the Spirit is real for me and God is at work in my life, should I go through the rest of my life angry? And the answer is obviously no, but I was so horrible at that most of my life. And so I tried to, I was mentioning a couple of people before we started. I thought, well, I'll narrow it down to a bite-sized part. I'm not going to get angry at people at boat landings. <laughs> so I worked on that for like three years, and I failed one time miserably when I yelled at a guy. Uh, and but even that, well, that's better than always being angry. And so the next one, I thought, well, that's modest victory. How about if I don't get angry while I'm driving? No, that's really raising the bar. <laughs> well, I got better at that, but it, you know, and I thought, well, that's not enough. You can't just compartmentalize sanctification. And uh, this verse has just been stuck in my mind. So here's what it says. I'll just read Romans 14, 17, and 19. You don't have this on yours. I stuck it on there yesterday or a couple days ago. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I was talking about now. For the one who serves Christ in this way is well-pleasing to God and approved by people. So then, now here's the exhortation. Let us pursue what promotes peace and what edifies one another. And I keep thinking if this is what we have now, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, shouldn't that be a worthy thing to look for, pursue, is that what it says here? We won't have it exactly until the resurrection, but would it be possible that I can have the peace of God in my heart as a fruit of the Spirit? Is it possible that a person who knows Christ can have the joy of the Holy Spirit. Not only possible, it's to be expected, isn't it? The fact that it's fleeting at times doesn't prove that we don't know Christ. Because Paul's writing to Christians who need this. We all do. Um, so let's pursue what promotes peace and what edifies one another. Now, here's where I want to speak and let you can judge this Christians judging one another over matters of Christian liberty that's what concerns me about all of us and so here's what has to happen in my opinion we need to get binding and loosing right what's forbidden what's permitted what's a sin what's not a sin now, that's determined by Christ and his apostles. Is that not right? 
So, so then I'm thinking, what are all these things that I'm agitated about? And instead of just being agitated, this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be. Wait, is this bound or loosed? Is it a sin to and whatever it is I'm upset about? Eat this food versus the other. That was in the context. Uh, all these things that people do. What kind of job you have? What kind of car you drive? Where you go? What you eat? Is it a sin or not? If it's a sin, it's fair game to try to ask God to forgive us and cleanse us from it. But if it's not a sin, I can still have an opinion if that's what I want to do, but it's not going to edify the church. So let me just let it go. I'm not saying this because I'm so good at it. I'm probably the worst. But when you get old, something's got to get better. (laughs) And my mom didn't give up on me. She's still here. (laughs) And uh, so if you just look at the context. So take that in. Look at the context of it. And then whatever it is, everything that gets going around, the people are upset with each other. Start with this, binding and loosing. What's a sin? What's not a sin? And we, that's debatable, but the big categories are pretty clear. And if it's a matter of liberty, then why don't I just afford my brother or sister the liberty to do what's liberty anyhow and, and not, uh, what's it say here? Uh, not edifying. It's not helpful. What kind of doctor you go to? What kind of health care you get? What kind of food you eat? What, what, whether you have a cabin or you don't have a cabin or you like to play golf or you like to do this. Or you, what, it, there's all these things that are life. They're all temporary. Is it liberty or not? That's the question. Everything's not a sin. Some things are. And so if I can't even, by God's grace, not yell at people at boat landings, although lately I haven't, Who am I to judge everything else? It's a very big uh, work of Christ to get peace and love and joy in our hearts. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Outbursts of anger are not a fruit of the Spirit. False judging that's not based on binding and loosing from Scripture is not a fruit of the Spirit. Things that are disputable, we can look and see if we can get an answer or not. I need to get this straight because I'm teaching through 1 Corinthians and a lot of it comes up. There are all kinds of things that come up. Some that I can't answer. I know I can't. But let's just try to get the categories right. Does that make any sense to anybody? Well, Paul said that. So I, I, let's, yeah, uh, Brian, give, you want to give him the mic? We look at uh, politics. We get mad at politicians, and yet uh, we think that if somebody else is our representative, whether it's local or national, that everything would be better. But it all goes back 
to that, uh, like the the book you gave me, yeah, that Hellfire Nation. Yeah, song. we we just we our expectations of being a Christian in America is uh, uh, warped. I uh, th- yeah no, when I was in Florida, didn't you do the thing on America's myth? Well, the America's myth is. Second Chronicles 7.14, and then whatever's wrong, says God's angry at the Christians. Well, America's heresy is post-millennialism. Now, there's a lot of evidence for that, and I can prove that. We'll have to do some radio on that. Post-millennialism is sort of the outgrowth of that other problem. So the millennium is supposed to come to America, and that's the city of the hill that everybody references, and then once we have the millennium, the rest of the world will see the millennium, and then the whole world will be Christianized, starting from America. But the problem is we can't agree on who the sinners are that are keeping the millennia, millennium from coming. And so both sides use the scriptures to rebuke each other, by selective reading. The liberals look at the red letters and say, well, you do the least of these, my brethren, meaning not believers in a church, but anybody who is the have-nots. And then the other, the Gary North, uh, Rush Dooney, the uh, Christian Reconstructionists say, we're going to take over America, implement the law of Moses, and force everybody to obey it. And when we do that, the millennium will come. And the first letter I wrote to a teacher was to Gary North, who teaches that. And he called me a fly coming through his window. He didn't have time to swat. (laughs) Well, I'm glad he didn't swat me. So I just asked him to account for his post-millennialism from Scripture. And I got a nasty response. But fact is, you can't have the millennium without Christ ruling on the earth. And if you think you can have the kingdom without the king, your kingdom is going to be really bad. So just think about that. Yes, Norm. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, to apply this principle to how different churches conduct their worship service and they have different kind of music and some have liturgy and some don't uh i think they have liberty to do some of this how, how do we apply that to, to we that? just did didn't we liberty we got a rebuke because we had a podcast and pointing out that some church had ash wednesday and the rainbow flag on the same church and that came up and i was we were saying well ash wednesday is not in the bible and I think Rome requires it. We got a really, you know, kind of a tough email back accusing us, you know, in harsh language. And so I tried to figure out. So I replied back to the guy. I think he was Lutheran or something like that, but I didn't even know Lutherans did Ash Wednesday. Yeah, but it really pushed somebody's button the wrong way. So I finally said, listen, when I replied, try to use reason and scripture 
if you believe it's your liberty to put ashes on your forehead at a certain time to remind yourself whatever it is you're reminding yourself of, that's your liberty. But if you bind the church to that or call it a means of grace or say that those who do it have piety that ordinary people don't have, then we have to disagree. That's not right. That is what the Catholics are saying. And so we kind of settled it down a little bit. It's okay. So I'm glad to get emails. But that's where the binding and loosing comes in. And so if somebody says, I trust Christ and Christ alone is shed blood. What he did is all I'm trusting in. But I put some ashes on my forehead once a year because that's what I want to do. I'm not making any claim. Okay. But that's pretty rare, isn't it? Usually it's the Catholic Church saying this is what you have to do. Meritorious works add to the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness. Help us understand what you've called us to. May we learn and keep learning. And may you help us walk in peace. And may we see the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit in our midst and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.